0: Right, welcome back to Love Murder, everyone. This is a very special bonus episode. We are deeply honored to be joined by Ruth Merkel, Dan's mother, and the author of The Unveiling: A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. So, if you guys haven't, and I'm sure you're familiar, with Dan's case. Maybe you listened to Over My Dead Body. Hopefully you listened to our last episode, which was episode number 125. We really want to get right into it with Ruth today. So I suggest you go back, listen to that episode or look it up because if you're not familiar, we're jumping right in today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Ruth.
1: Thank you. I'm really delighted to be part of your program. The title Love and Murder already says a lot, <laughs> and. Uh, Maybe it's too familiar. It's a very good title, and I'm looking forward to the podcast.
0: Yes, I hope that you enjoy our rendition. I have to say first that we are so truly sorry for your loss. Obviously, in forms of media like this, sometimes that part, that human part of it gets forgotten in the fact that this is such a huge and ongoing story. And Andy and I really offer our deepest condolences for you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I really have a lot of thanks for all the people who have that sensitivity to the fact that the criminal system's operating, but basically we're still in grief, right? So uh, it's important.
0: It is important. And I think that that is the genesis of your book, which is so beautifully written. I know that you're an experienced author, that you've written a number of books, but I do have to say that this one It just gets to the heart of it. It is part memoir and a loving tribute to your son. And also it very starkly and unflinchingly shows us what it is to be a homicide survivor and to go through this somewhat dehumanizing process.
1: Yes, let me let me a little bit talk about that, because I think that's one of the things that the book is really about, the unveiling. It's there's two parts to the title, which I'll explain. The first part is why it's called the unveiling in the Jewish religion. When there is any kind of a funeral, after about six months, you put the tombstone on the gravesite. And for me, it was when we put and we inscribe it and we cover it with a curtain, like a piece of fabric, until we have the ritual, which is an actual service where you invite people to an unveiling. And for me, that was when my grief process started. So that's really the reason, one of the reasons for on a personal story level, which this is, that's when I started the deep, deep grief before I was in a daze and out of body experience. But this was in the guts and more. Now, the second reason and more important to the public is to lift the veil, lift the curtain and show the public what is the experience of living the life of a victim. And this is really important because. We don't see the victim as much in, you know, this is a very glitzy case. I don't have to tell you. There's been two shows of 2020, uh, two-hour shows on Dateline, the Wondery Project. So this has had a lot of advantage. Having said that, the victim is really the actual, there's a term in Canada they use to describe the victim. It's the orphan of the criminal system. And that's one of the reasons actually that I actually wrote the book.
0: I can see that. Absolutely. And it totally makes sense. It's interesting. It also makes me think about how you wrote that the media attention is both a blessing and a
1: curse. No, I didn't say a curse. I never
0: said it. A- uh, no, not a curse. Hey, sorry. Those were my words. It's not a curse. It's good. But it's, it, the, the attention can be overwhelming. But at the same time, there's so many other cases that do not get this attention that don't keep the focus on justice. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: First of all, we are privileged with the media. And and there was actually not a a point yet that we actually felt sort of the interference. The irony is when the case broke, we were in Tallahassee for five days. So the media did come. This is the only time that I would say they were quote unquote intrusive, but we weren't even there. So what they did is they came in Toronto, all of them, CNN, ABC, plus all the Canadian media. They went on our street in Toronto and they tried to interview all our neighbors, but nobody knew Dan. He didn't grow up there. But we were in Tallahassee in that whole period of time and they never bothered us then and so forth. And the other part about the media was the only time that they kind of, you know, went beyond the boundaries was when the funeral occurred in Toronto. So this is after five days. And at that particular point, they weren't allowed on the property of the funeral home because there was a really large amount of people who were coming to attend, but they hid in the bushes. So the paparazzi got, as I would say, that one picture that they needed. But that's been really the only time altogether that the media ever interfered. And the reason they've been respectful is when we're at the trials, which we're there frequently... I mean, too too many times in the hearings on Zoom and so forth, we tell them, because they sit at the trial, they sit right in front of us, the ABC, NBC, and whoever, they're right there. And at the end of the trial, we say, now we'll comment. So they really don't interfere with us while we're actually in the criminal system in Tallahassee.
0: Good. That's nice to hear. I'm glad to hear that, too, because I know we've had another interview with Dr. Jan Canty, who's also... A homicide survivor, her husband, was murdered, and this was back in the 80s, and it sounded like she had a very different experience, and and I'm hoping that means that the media concerning these cases are evolving and having greater sensitivity with dealing with family members. And I certainly think it must, it must help. I mean, do you think that the intense media attention around this case is helping propel the arrests made, the continuing investigation, because there's so much public interest and then pressure on the justice system
1: down there? I think that's true. I, I think the media certainly keeps the momentum. And it keeps the, you know, Danny, this is the part about Danny deserves some credit here. He had international acclaim. Danny, he finished Harvard, he went to Cambridge, England, and he also um, had started Prof's blog. And I don't know if you know what that is. That's That's the block for legal students and lawyers, which I think really gave him this international opportunities. And having said all that, the media was there from the start. We didn't go out. You know, it's interesting. So Dan's father, Phil, and I, you know how sometimes the lawyers encourage the family to go out as victims in the first stages, but we never really went out in the first two years. We really only started after the arrests when we were deprived of the opportunity to continue seeing our grandchildren. And it was at that point that we said, okay, the lawyers tried behind the scenes to see if Wendy would allow us to visit, that's his ex-wife, and that didn't happen. So it's at that point that we said, okay, Dateline was coming up with a regular program on the case. And we said, "It's our." they always invited us, but this time we said yes. And that was how we started really to give a voice to the grandparent issue. Grandparent alienation is a major, major issue in Canada and the United States. I don't know if I said before I'm from Canada. Dan was born in Canada. Yeah, we know. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I should say that. But why I'm telling you this part of the story was that we decided really just then to use the media to help us. Another thing that we have phenomenal support, you mentioned it already, which is justice for Dan. The social media that uh, Jason Solomon started is amazing. And there's a whole young community. um, Catherine uh, Halpern-Cypher, she helped with the grandparent legislation. We are privileged even in this difficult, difficult stage.
0: Yes, and Catherine, you met in a beauty salon on your 75th birthday, right?
1: That's correct. It was amazing. I had been thinking, as I said, we went out on the regular TV and media and said we couldn't see the grandchildren. And nothing happened, but our New York lawyer mentioned this to us to me. I should start a bill for grandparent visitation. And I'm sitting in Canada, and this is like before 2016. We didn't even get through the justice system yet or anything like that. And I sat on it, and then my friends, American, all said, You got to get lobbyists. But I didn't do anything with that yet. Finally, when Garcia's trial finished, so he was the person. He's in jail long-term, and he was a shooter. When his trial finished in 2019, I went to the hairdresser, and this young woman jumps up and says to me, can I give you a hug? And I said, sure. And she says, how can I help? We went out afterwards for coffee. And I said, grandparent alienation. And she said, done. That was it, you know, and she had the contact. She is now an owner. At the time, she was a partner in a very large uh, media firm in uh, Florida and she knew a lot of the politicians so we were really fortunate and she created this community with Jason Solomon and Jeremy Cohn and many many others because we had lobbyists too and a whole community and we got the uh, grandparent legislation passed just this last year 2022 it's very exciting and it was signed by Governor DeSantis in June.
0: Wow. Congratulations. I'm so, so excited. It was in April. Is it called the Markel Act?
1: Yes, it is. It, it, it actually passed both the Senate and the legislature in early March. And then after that, DeSantis did sign it in June.
0: I think it's really wonderful to talk to you about all of these details because it's giving a lot of light into how incredible the media and social media in general can influence cases like this nowadays. And I think that this is going to be a big example for people moving forward on how everyone can help a lot more in regards to community online and in person with connections and helping pass bills. I mean, that's remarkable. And how fast it happened.
1: Now, it is remarkable if you have the right opportunity and structure. But I do want to mention something about the grieving family. And it comes in the context of why I waited three years, because I did. I sat on my, you know what, waiting. And that was because I wasn't ready yet. So this is a very important point. Many people who are grieving, they want to do something philanthropic for their for their child or, or other relative who were murdered, memorialize, do something else, and so forth. And they're not ready, and they sit on it. And I say, I waited the three years, so I'm in the same crowd, so to speak. And having said that afterwards, I was ready to launch after Garcia's trial. So the criminal system started, if you see what I'm trying to say. And then mm-hmm. that was that kind of relief button that I had and it really worked. So I, I went from what I call grief to advocacy, to promise to outcome.
0: Yeah, and it's sure. a strong message. And everyone's journey is probably so different. So it's that's also important to consider too, I suppose. Yes. You write a lot about the waiting, the unbearable waiting part of the justice system. And we can definitely talk more about that if you would like. But it did seem like there was a lot of waiting and a lot of uncertainty. And then when the ball got rolling, now things seem to be picking up.
1: Yes, that's true. I, I think this is very important because we waited two years until they really had a like the arrest. But even previous to that, it was a good solid year until they just kind of identified a car in the process you know that was becoming the Prius that they could certainly follow. I think that the reason we have to talk about the uncertainty and you asked before but and I'm glad you use one term which is homicide survivor. I use the two together and the book is really about these, this combination. The homicide survivor is a psychological term. It deals with the sudden impact of a murder on a person or a family. It's violent, it's sudden, and it throws everything off. Now, the victim is an actual legal term in the system. Victims have rights, okay? You have the right to write the victim impact statements, you have the right to have certain kinds of consultation, and so forth. It's the interaction, and this is really what your audience should understand. It's the interaction of the homicide psychological component with the legal process that makes this different than any other loss. And that's the uniqueness. And the waiting and the uncertainty is probably the largest uh, life change that you have because you don't even know what's happening. We had multiple hearings that were, uh, they use the word, I love the word, continued, which is cancelled or postponed, but that were continued. And then we had the pandemic. Okay, this was another Whole series of changes, and this keeps on happening. And then afterwards, just recently, Catherine McManus was supposed to be, um, you know, have her um, trial in February two thousand twenty-two, and then we were actually turned out to be fortunate that we had the enhancement from the Dolce Vita restaurant that led to the arrest of Charlie Adelson. That's another another postponement. So that's the point about the uncertainty and the waiting. Speaking
0: of updates, there was a major one that came out on Wednesday. Yes. About Katie turning state's witness. Now you're in it. So you cannot say too much about this process. And I completely respect that. But were you aware that that was going to happen? Do you, you can't tell us probably anything, but how are you feeling about what has at least been publicly released?
1: Well, I, I don't mind talking for a few minutes about that. What I certainly talk about, I you know, we, we always hope that there would be that plea bargaining. I mean, we would have hoped that if she did it six years ago, it would have been better. I mean, this is you know, it's the timing is off. But let me tell you a little bit about what that is because that's now we're waiting again. We're waiting till she comes now to Tallahassee at the end of November. We have a December second. This is really an important point. December second case management with uh, with Charlie Adelson right so when his trial is going to be so now like none of us know what we're doing in 2023 until we get that schedule but I'll talk for a minute about Catherine because I think there's a lot of things uh it will be major media now what we know and what we don't know okay so we know she was convicted in May she has life, a life sentence. She I don't know. Did you cover this in your other show? Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, so we, we got through to the fact that Charlie was arrested and his bond denied and that hopefully he will be going to trial next year, hopefully. And then we also did update just on our social media what is going on with Katie, who got life without the possibility of parole plus two 30-year yes, sentences. Yes, it is
1: consecutive. For a solicitation of murder and conspiracy of murder. Yes. Now, since then, I'm, I'll give you some more updates. Uh, you might not know this because we receive as a victim uh, some notification from the Attorney General's office that she's appealing. She's appealing this, all of those particular convictions. And in addition to her appealing them, this is just an, sort of an intricate part. She, the Public Defenders Act, which really should be providing a lawyer for her, they refused for her and for Garcia and for others, they refused to act because they have a conflict of interest with Danny because he was an FSU professor and either they, on a collegial level, or one of them could have been his student. We don't really know. It's not all they state very publicly, and there's a document actually which is on Justice for Dan, I believe it's there, which talks about why they have a conflict of interest. So that's something news to go with. And the other thing in terms of just kind of feeding in, there's so much speculation now with Catherine, is when after her trial in May, so Chris Dacoste, which was her lawyer, he stayed behind in Tallahassee for about a week or 10 days. So it's possible that he tried to encourage Catherine at the time to either... Talk, or he was there really just to comfort her. She was distraught, really after the trial. So that's kind of where we are now, and we'll know. It's very short, right? We'll know a few, in a few weeks. Does she have something to really offer?
0: Whew! Yep. And she was offered immunity several times. They tried to make deals with her that she turned down previously, right?
1: At the very beginning, i not. You know, it's interesting. I, someplace in the media, it says several times. I know for sure one time at the very beginning before her arrest, I'm not up to date with several times. I'm not sure if that's like buzz or reality. Okay. Yeah,
0: things it's probably a little telephone. You hear one person hears another thing and then all of a sudden it's several times. One thing that you said you wrote about in unveiling is that a heartbreaking part of this process, and we'll get to your grandsons very soon, which is a very heartbreaking part of this. But another part is that you're getting older And not only do you desire to see your grandsons and spend time with them, obviously, but there was a sense of a worry that you won't get to see justice fully served.
1: Well, I think that's true. I I think, you know, look how long things crawl. We're not getting younger and and who knows? You start hitting the, we're not 80 yet, but we're getting close. And you start to, to know, I mean, reality hits that there's chances of getting illness or whatever. So it is a concern. Yes, we would love to rush the system and make it match our chronological (laughs) age. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that arrests have been made, hopefully Charlie is going to be going to trial. Maybe Catherine has some information that will help in that endeavor. Are you feeling a little bit more comforted by how things are unfolding?
1: I think so. Look, we want, the family wants justice, right? And we're waiting for a long time. So whatever it is, we feel like we're moving at least in the right direction. That's really what we could say.
0: If you guys are listening, just buy the book, read the book, review the book, get the unveiling. It's wonderful. Ruth, I have it. I have my hard copy, I have my Kindle copy and my Audible copy.
1: (laughs) Wow, great, I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Super fan over here, super fan. But it really is also, it's a move for advocacy, the book, but it's also a love letter to your son and to your grandsons. And I really hope that Benjamin and Lincoln read it someday because it's so clear that your primary objective is not just justice for your son, though it's very important. It is just to be with your grandsons, to be a part of their life, to have visitation. You're not trying to go for full custody. You just want to keep Dan's memory alive and spend time with them. Do you want to speak to that at all or maybe give us an update on how that's going?
1: Part of my motivation for writing, because we're getting into besides telling this personal story, it's a little bit of a record for the grandchildren, right? Like they're going to grow up soon. One is almost, just turned, I shouldn't say, almost 13, and the other 12. And this is a very important part of the purpose. And we don't know what they know. And we don't know when they're going to hear it. But somewhere along the line, someone is going to tell them, maybe even us, that, you know, there's a book. So I think that that's a very important part of it. I'll tell you the updates. So we I mentioned before, we, the legislation was signed in January by Governor DeSantis. And it's called, in the more legal world, the HB 119. But in the informal, it's called the Markell Act. And the law, which is very important, it provides an opportunity when there is a deceased person, a spouse or a partner, and the other person has criminal or civil findings against them, this is where visitation should be. I don't want to use the word automatic, it still has to go through the court, but it would be approved without too many questions under those circumstances. And what that has done is it really brought out that, you know, you're in this love and murder, but there are a lot of murder cases. You can't imagine how many people wrote me. We're in this circumstance. My sister-in-law has this, you know, like looking for, for support. And so this is really what the legislation does. I do have to say that we had a very unique experience. I'm not sure if you would had that in your story, but after the legislation was passed in the House and in the Senate, and Catherine McBanna was trial, was continued to May 16th, I had an email from Wendy Adelson, that's his ex-wife, and she wrote me that Benjamin's having a bar mitzvah on May 14th. So... This is, of course, you know, just before the trials, Wendy appears. So she always will like to look in a positive manner as well. But the point was there was an invitation to me and all our family to come to this bar mitzvah. So then I wrote her, look, we didn't see the children for uh, six years. Can we have on the May 13th an in-person visit and just take them for, for ice cream, like 45 minutes? You could be busy the day before. But let them know we're people sitting in the audience, right? Who are we? What are we there for? Anyway, so then she wrote back, you want an in-person visit, come in April. And we did. We just jumped on a plane for one day. Bill and I went down. And we went and we had a a really good visit with the boys. We got back on the plane and we landed back in Canada about 1 a.m. on on April 21st. At 6 a.m., I get a call from the FBI Charlie's arrested. So this is all in 24 hours. Wow. Two breakthroughs in the case. 24 hours. So that was amazing. So that's really the update. And then unfortunately, because of Charlie's arrest later, she did disinvite us to the bar mitzvah, but we're hoping to actually, I am, I'm going to be in Florida, in South Florida in December, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to see them again. Have a visit.
0: Oh, well, I'm so sorry that you were disinvited, but I'm so glad that you got that opportunity after six long years to spend some time with them.
1: It's very important. What I really wanted, and then I had Shelly. She she uh, allowed us to have a Zoom with Shelly's children because only Phil and I saw the kids. I wanted face recognition. You know, it sounds in our tech high tech world that the my other grandkids now are 22, 19, and 16. And they're 13 and 12, so they can all know what they all look like. They're not adult, adults, all of them, but they certainly are grown up enough that they would know if they saw each other on the street. And that's really my objective, is to keep them all united.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I think a thing that people responded to very strongly in a, in a negative way was Wendy changing the children's names.
1: Right. This
0: was something that all of our listeners and anyone who was just kind of discussing the case stuck out to them because it felt like such a sucker punch.
1: It was terrible. It was, and it was a year, you know, it wasn't after the arrest. It was a year before everything. It happened in around July, 2015. She said she did it so the boys should be safe going to school and switching the name you can imagine now from Markel to Adelson. So she should have picked Smith, Cone, God knows what else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. If it was for safety, there's
0: a lot of choices there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, can you kind of close on anything that you think our audience should know about your journey, anything you want them to know about Dan, about what you hope your book will accomplish and who you hope to help?
1: I hope the book actually does two things. One is to broaden the public now, I'm talking the real public, not the mm-hmm. criminal situation, people who have criminal experiences, that they really see what a family goes through. Most of the times the public really have the, which is good, the opportunity to listen to, to these families in, in the time when there's either the victim impact statement or you know, when their lawyers introduce them to the public You know right after the immediate murder or or school shooting or whatever i mean it's you know it's tough times so this is really important to actually show the public what does this life really look like and so forth the second reason i want to write there's a few reasons i'll tell you the next reason i actually have a purpose which is a secondary purpose but it's becoming more and more important which is for some of the professions particularly the legal profession even some psychologists social workers to have sensitivity to compassion to the victim. The victims don't know. It's a foreign language. We don't know the terms. You don't know this. You don't know the process. Even the first day any kind of offender comes in to after their investigation, they take their DNA. They take, you know, um, blood tests. They do fingerprints. all kinds of stuff. The, the, but the victim is hanging around and lost, okay? this is mm-hmm. So this is an important message. Even I'm talking now really to the professional side of people who help families and, and people in, in difficult situations. The other message I think is really very much about resiliency and hope and advocacy and making a decision sometimes to redefine yourself, even although you're in grief, because that's an important point. It's not going to change if you're dealing with with murder, like many of your listeners are, are attending your particular program. It's a long-term process and they're in the criminal system. I'm talking about the families at this point and recognizing that it takes a long time. It's not, you know, tomorrow morning that it's resolved. Like other, and the, on a personal level, other losses don't have the criminal system with them. So the trauma is different. And I think understanding that, that factor about the trauma and so forth. And at the same time, the message is, I don't say ever, Move on. You can move forward, and I don't believe in closure. I say it out loud. In these circumstances, closure is a word in the dictionary, and so it's all like a step-by-step process. But the important point is to redefine yourself.
0: Well, I think you have certainly done that and beyond, and and moved through your grief, it, it, and not through. I mean, I'm sure it's it's not over, um, but in a way that is helping others, which is truly extraordinary. And so we really, really appreciate your time. I'm so happy you came on the show, Ruth. If there's anything Andy and I can ever do to help you through the rest of this process that I know is still, you're still in the thick of it, please just let us know.
1: Thank you so much. And happy Thanksgiving. Our Thanksgiving was in October, but happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. holiday. Because we're we're excited.
0: We're gonna be together. So we're looking forward to it. With both of our families are gonna be together, her father and stepmother and my whole family and our kids and everything. So we're celebrating.
1: Keep yeah, celebrating. I say that. Celebrate, celebrate. Anyway, thank you again. Thank it's you. It's been great. wonderful. Thank you. Thank
0: you, guys. And remember, The Unveiling by Ruth Markell. Go check it out at your local bookstore. It's on Amazon. We'll be pushing it on our socials, too.
1: Wonderful. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Bye, Ruth.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye.